Hi, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Dissidents and Dictators, the flagship podcast from the Human Rights Foundation. My name is Casey Michelle, and alongside my incorrigible co-host, Alicia Maldonado. Say hi, Alicia. Hello. We've got a jam-packed episode for you today. We've got plenty of global travels to catch you up on, as well as the latest from the front lines of the fight for freedom in Ukraine, so stay tuned. Hello, welcome back. Oh, hey, thanks thanks for having me. You were uh, gallivanting, as I like to say last week. Yes, I do enjoy a good gallivant. Yeah, Har- I, was, I was out and about. Javier and I were working hard. And... Well, it sounds like it was a great episode. And you were gallivanting. Uh, Shout out to Javier for keeping my seat warm for me. I was in beautiful, scenic Nairobi, Kenya. So jealous. For a few days for uh, for a conference, for work. Oh, um, okay. Lucky duck. Uh, I was, I mean, I'm a very lucky duck because they have direct flights from New York to Nairobi now. So uh, it's not bad. 15 hours, pop a couple movies on. Take some Benadryl. um, Some Benadryl, yeah. Some Dramamine. And you wake up and and there you are in Nairobi. Um, Did you get good? I mean, this is the most important question you'll be asked in this podcast today. Did you get served good airplane food? Well, so that sounds like an oxymoron when you say (laughs) good airplane. I mean, it was edible. Yeah. I ate it. Yeah. I survived. Am I better off for it? I don't know. Yeah, well, you survived. You're Am here. I healthier for it? Can't say. Yeah, so what was the event? So I was there not just to, you know, take in the local wildlife and do a little bit of bird watching on the side. Gotta hear and obviously that. that's what folks want to, want to hear about. I 100% do. All of the 150 plus different bird species <laughs> that I saw. I was there for a conference. I was there for work. Um, there was a conference going on in Nairobi hosted by the fine folks for uh, or from uh, uh, National Endowment for Democracy, uh, focused on my kind of bread and butter of transnational money laundering, okay. international corruption, illicit finance, under the kind of broader, or I suppose narrower, given how broad the topic is already, rubric of looking specifically, primarily, at Russian and Chinese uh, financial chicanery uh, and financial investments. Good word. Uh, in Africa, on the continent itself. What do we know? What can we learn? What differentiates the two? Where are things going? And what kind of strategies can we begin evolving, developing, to push back against some of these networks we've seen emerge in the past few years? Um, basically, where do we go from here? Can you give us a little tidbit? How are they there? I mean, how, how are what, they there? What are they doing? Well, prominent. Yeah. Um, so the, the conference itself was under under Chatham House rules, which means okay. I can't cite anything that any specific individuals said or uh, commented on. But you know, at the, at the ten thousand foot level, I think a lot of folks at this point are kind of generally tangentially aware that certainly China has significant investments in Africa, mm-hmm. part of its broader Belt and Road That's Initiative, infrastructure. and again I- I- intersecting with with geopolitics regarding things like policy in Taiwan or even kind of the emerging Cold War between China and uh, the democratic world. There's that idea. There's that kind of reality there. I do think also, though, a lot more folks are aware that Russia, perhaps surprisingly, also has a presence on the continent and, frankly, has had a presence for years mm-hmm. and years. Now, I think I think pulling back a lot of that, again, if folks are aware of that, they're pro- probably primarily Uh, aware of it because of the role of the Russian militia, the private military company, the the Wagner Group or Wagner Group, 
uh, which was up until last year overseen by a, a Russian oligarch, a, a chef, uh, a former pro professional chef, a guy named Yevgeny Prigozhin, who folks may remember led this kind of quasi-mutiny, quasi-putsh in Moscow. Um, uh, and then a few months later, I don't know how else to say this, exploded <laughs> in the sky. Uh, but before that, he had his tendrils in all kinds of African countries um, uh, around the continent via his militia organization, which was effectively a, kind of a, a para-state actor, mm. which was um, uh, an extension of Russian officialdom in all but name in terms of security arrangements and in terms of commercial contracts. So anyways, that's kind of a long-winded way of saying I do think a lot more folks are aware now that certainly China, but also Russia, does have a presence on the continent, um, which I think caught a lot of folks in the democratic world, certainly in the policymaking right. space, uh, you know, kind of flat-footed, frankly. Mm. I mean, if you were talking even just a few years ago about Russian militias running, you know, a, a, a rampage over over certain right. African countries, you know, you would have been laughed out of the room. And so it's one thing to be aware of it now, but it's another thing to talk about policy responses as well as more recent trajectories of the two of them. How are they received by Africans on the continent? Well, depends on the country, depends on yeah, the constituency. Sure. Uh, depends on the regime, depends on uh, what Moscow or Beijing. It's a broad question. Doing. It's a broad question. <laughs> I mean, and again, a broad question, you, you'll get a broad answer. Some folks on the ground love it. Some folks on the ground absolutely adore, especially the security provisions mm. that those on the Russian side of things are uh, providing. This is it's such a cliche, but I remember not long ago talking with a taxi driver, uh, a guy from Burkina, uh, Burkina Faso, talking about how grateful he was for Putin's men, as he called them, coming in and targeting mm. local terrorist cells, local anti-government cells um, uh, in, in Burkina. And, you know, I'm, I'm sitting there, I'm listening to the guy saying, okay, yeah, sure, 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 fine, fine, fine. But we do need to understand that these... In certain in certain pockets, whether it's Burkina, whether it's Mali, whether it's Niger, whether it's places even uh, especially like the Central African Republic, mm -hmm. the security concerns, security and state fracture realities, the kind of on the ground destabilization, uh, oftentimes under democratic backed or Western backed governments, really created an opening mm -hmm. for other actors, in this case Russia, to provide those kind of security needs, those arms flows, those military personnel to either uh, support coups that overthrew these, you know, kind of doddering, tottering regimes, or even simply target, harass, kill, jail, you name it, uh, anti-government groups themselves. I mean, there's very clearly an opening that through Western myopia or, you know, again, short-sightedness, lack of policy planning, the Russians took clear advantage of. Now, the counter to that is that I think a lot of folks are realizing, this is where I'll bring China into this, a lot of folks on the ground are now realizing that came with a heavy price. Right. That was not free of charge. And whether it is things like um, stripping the country of resources, gold mining, uh, gold mining, uh, diamond mining, uh, oil extraction, uh, environmental degradation, now propping up further anti-democratic regimes, realizing the Russians were perhaps not the friends they initially mm. seemed to be. Um, all of this taking, taking place simultaneous to now we are, what is it, 10, 11 years after China's Belt and Road Initiative first got launched. These promises, these pledges of investment, of infrastructure, of jobs creation, you know, it's all fine and good to say that at the outset. A lot of folks in Africa are now realizing those infrastructure investments are not what they chalked, they're not the, chalked they're up They're not be. the gifts. Those jobs creation programs 
certainly created jobs, but only for the Chinese laborers that were brought in. Local businesses have suffered. Local infrastructure projects are now already, even just a few years in, starting to fall apart. Oh, and then all of this around uh, Chinese debt concerns um, of what local governments and local polities now owe uh, Beijing. I mean, all of it, all of it creates this kind of increasingly concerning picture uh, on the Chinese side as well. So I guess what I'm saying is, you know, the Russian and the Chinese presence in Africa is there. It is real. Yeah. There are clear differences between them, especially on the security versus the commercial side of things. But there is increasing realization on the continent that these all come with significant prices and they are not chalked up to what they were initially pledged as, all of which creates an opening, a further opening, finally, for democratic governments around the world yeah. to come back and say, look, we hear you, we understand. Um, why don't we have a conversation about what perhaps we can provide, what resources we can leverage as we move forward to help uh, not only push back against Russia and Chinese yeah. presence, but also broader Russian and Chinese narratives about you know, the decline of democracy, the need for autocracy, so on and so forth. So this is really just a long-winded way of me <laughs> kind of just spitting out a bunch of thoughts that I had as I'm yeah. still trying to digest everything that I heard and I learned uh, in Nairobi. Yeah, it's one of those things, I think, you know, especially with especially with China, but Russia, too, you know, um, that people don't quite realize, you know, that the title of Masha Gessen's book, The Future is History. Mm. And we never just we don't quite pay attention to exactly the the slow moving, you know, tracks that they're laying until it's too late. And the mm. Chinese are so good at that. Mm -hmm. And of course, as you say, Russia in a very different way. But but China's so good at a long, slow game. And by the time the rest of us catch up to what they're doing, it feels seemingly too late. Yeah. One of the really interesting things to me, again, just kind of learning. And look, I, I had my thoughts, you know, talking about the intersection of, you know, anti-Russian, anti-Chinese rhetoric and kind of broader geopolitics, spread of democracy, so on and so forth. One of the really interesting things to me, because you, you kind of get in the weeds of it and you don't really pull yourself back, is, is the clear delineation between Russian and Chinese interests and activities on the continent. And I think someone there summed it up pretty well by saying, you know, Russia is an agent of chaos mm -hmm. on the continent. They are looking for the destabilization. They're looking for the openings within state fracture, civil strife, even civil war, to kind of insert themselves and, again, provide the security measures while also grabbing the oil rights, the mining rights um, uh, to extract capital. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it's in many ways kind of traditional colonialism, if you really think about it. Um, all without the formal annexations themselves. Whereas China prefers these long-term economic partnerships, um, economic stability, authoritarian stability mm -hmm. uh, that they can rely on, they can come to time and time and time again. And this gets to the broader geopolitical concerns and considerations out of Beijing. Moscow sees Africa as a means of extracting capital and exporting arms, um, less so the kind of geopolitics in terms of diplomatic yeah. maneuvering. That is very much a reality and a concern for Beijing uh, and plays a substantial part in their broader African strategy uh, itself. Do you think that we in Western democratic countries pay enough attention to Africa? Because in my mind, and I think I said this earlier on one of our first podcasts, because I was talking about this with one of our friends and also last year, you know, it just seems that no one pays attention or really cares. And it, it just the attitude, or at least my perception of the attitude is that, um, you know, it's a place historically rife with conflict. And so nothing's going to change. Let's focus on something else. But, but then creates avenues for the, for China and Russia to come in. What well, is it is it overlooked? Absolutely. Yeah. Right? This is a continent with, what, 1.2 billion. No one talks about it. Uh, 
you know, just think of how much news coverage you see of the Chinas and the Indians of right, the world. Right, exactly. And yet, if you take Africa in totality, again, we're talking about a, 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 a burgeoning superpower unto itself. Right. Uh, a center of global commerce, global influence that has been overlooked and understudied and underappreciated yeah. for, uh, pick, pick your time rights, in centuries at this point. Um, you know, you have 55 members of the African Union. You have these already transnational organizations on the continent. I, I don't remember have the demographics in front of me, but if you think of global youth as it is, as such, it is in Africa. Yeah. It is not yeah. in China. It's, it's certainly less so in, 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 in India than it is in, in, in Africa. Um, I am, and again, this, look, this is not my forte. This is, this is obviously a quick trip there, there yeah. and back. But in my conversations, you can't help but be bullish and excited. Yeah. about the broader prospects of the continent. Now, I say that, though, with one other takeaway of, this, of, the, of the conference being that there is a very real concern among the policymakers I was speaking to, among the experts I was speaking to, that especially the younger generation, mm -hmm. this kind of post-post-colonial generation rising of age, is far, unfortunately, it seems thus far, far less wedded to the idea and to the promise of democracy as such mm -hmm. than the preceding generation, than maybe even you know the current ruling generation. Um, and understandably so. They have seen democratic regimes, democratic governments fail over and over again, mm -hmm. and they have seen them transform into this morass of corruption and patronage, yeah. which again allows the Russians and the Chinese of the world to come in and those anti-democratic narratives to really take root. And you are able to... Sorry, I got distracted by the... Yeah. There are these very real concerns about a younger generation, a generation coming of political age, mm -hmm. being far less wedded to the idea uh, and to supporting democracy as, as such, because they, they have seen democratic movements, democratic governments, over and over again, many times, devolve into you know, corrupt networks, corrupt regimes, regimes dedicated solely to patronage, mm -hmm. so on and so forth, which again creates this opening for the Russias and the Chinas of the world, especially the anti-democratic narratives that they are pushing to find fertile ground on, on the continent. So yes, I mean, to, to go back to your question earlier, Leash, needs far more attention. Yes, I agree. And even concern mm -hmm. um, about developing proper pro-democratic policies for the continent, on the continent, and certainly by uh, uh, local movements themselves to make sure to engender that kind of support, the need for democratic movements and democratic success mm. on the continent. Because again, we are talking about a global, a budding, a soon-to-be superpower unto itself. Yeah, totally agree. And I'll just say this really quickly. Um, you know, our colleague Alex Gladstein, he's our chief strategy officer. He and his financial freedom team, which is a program here uh, at HRF, they've been focusing a lot on Africa. And so he just wrote this piece in Bitcoin magazine. Bitcoin is neither one of our expertise, so we'll share it in the show notes. But um, he writes about how um, Bitcoin is helping um, expand financial freedom in Africa, um, financing electrical infrastructure and empowering millions. And, and it's a really good piece, and uh, we'll share it and 
Yeah, and look, I, you know, at the risk of tooting our own horn, you yeah. know, HRF obviously has an incredible network on the continent itself, from Equatorial Guinea to South Africa to including Kenya as well. Yeah. Um, it is, it is uh, you know, obviously been a phenomenal resource. So for those of us on the learning end, yeah. uh, on the researching end, um, and very excited to see where we go from here. Yeah, me too. Speaking of where we're going from here, Casey, <laughs> you're off to D.C. next week. Oh, uh, uh, yes. Back. Actually, actually, uh, right when this episode is airing, I'm going to be in D.C. You want to tell us what we're doing? Uh, got, uh, yeah. More gonna, Russia talk, eh? Uh, yeah, more, more. Again, speaking of Russia, speaking of, of futures, <laughs> I'm going to be giving a talk at the Atlantic Council, which is a uh, D.C.-based think tank. Um, on uh, a topic that is near and dear to my heart, Russian corruption, Russian kleptocracy, and most especially potential future scenarios yeah. uh, in Russia. Where will Russia be in 2030, 2035, 2040? What kind of scenarios should we be considering? And how do we implement uh, policies therein? And again, I think this gets back to what we were talking about, about uh, you know the African continent just a moment ago. For so long, for too long, Western policymakers have been reactive, have been backfooted, have been almost cowed by developments elsewhere, not able to get ahead of them, let alone even imagine what it could be taking place, what will be taking place um, in certain polities. And certainly, uh, I mean, goodness, this is what I'll be talking about on <laughs> Friday at 12.30 p.m. Atlanta Council. We'll put registration information in the show notes. Yes, 100%. You can watch it online. But my goodness, do I not need to tell everyone about the failures <laughs> of imagination, even since the late Cold War, about what is going to be happening, what will be happening, and beyond that, how can we adapt? How can we actually be proactive yeah. in terms of policy responses? I look forward to listening into that. Thank I you. I think it'll be great, as always. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, Casey, while we're uh, on the topic of Ukraine, uh, did you see this latest news while you were out of the country? Well, I, you know, it was, it, I think I know what you're talking about, and, and certainly coming back to the U.S. back here in New York, ca catching up on developments out of Washington, yeah. uh, which, I, again, similarly mirror developments out of, out of Brussels as well. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, yeah uh, disconcerting. Apparently, uh, Pentagon has no more money for Ukraine as it hosts a meeting of 50 allies on support for Kyiv. That's in the AP. What do you make of it? Uh, it's distressing. I mean, look, I, I, I have been, uh, just as so many others far longer than I have, you know, banging the drum for, frankly, years at this point. I mean, ever, ever since the first invasion in 2014 mm -hmm. uh, of, of, um, of southern Ukraine, you know, of the Crimean Peninsula. I mean, this... Ukraine has been on the front line of the fight for freedom, for democracy, for far, far longer than almost any other nation at this point. Yep. Um, and Ukrainians are dying by the thousands just as to we're join the democratic world. Just as, a, as we're approaching year three of this invasion, going to be sans weapons. Or, I mean, they've got some, but, you know, unable to send more ammunition missiles. Look, I'm, I'm ultimately optimistic about the war, about the fight in Ukraine, but that, that's a long time horizon. You know, you mm -hmm. see these dark mm -hmm. clouds emerging and you see these kind of frivolous conversations taking place again in, in the Washingtons and the Brussels of the world getting really bogged down in the minutiae of specific mm. spending programs of, of of specific financing packages without again pulling back and realizing the role that the Ukrainians are playing day in and day out to beat back these Russian invaders but more broadly to prove that the kind of autocratic expansionism the you know uh, imperialistic dictatorship that Putin himself has refined, has entrenched in Moscow, has no place, not only in Europe but in the world as large. I mean, I, how many other autocratic regimes are looking at Putin right now and salivating? Right. Are looking at what Russia has already accomplished in Ukraine and it's and a good role model. Eh? Yep. 
are frothing at the chance to bite off apart or swallow entirely one of their neighbors. I think China and Taiwan, mm-hmm. most especially, but by no means limited to the uh, the Western Pacific. Right, right. Uh, and it doesn't seem to have an end in sight. So it's a, it's bad timing to right to have to allegedly be out of money um, for a conflict that does not seem any close to a resolution. No, no, it's it's all extremely unfortunate. I think a lot of folks are still forgetting that so many of these financial packages, they're not donations. It's not just money being given. It's 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 contracts for local manufacturing jobs to then ship arms to the Ukrainians. Um, it is an investment in our own safety and security. And again, at the end of the day, proof, investment in proof that democracy has to succeed, mm-hmm. can succeed, and will succeed. I mean, this is you know, in many ways, the fight of our lifetime right now taking place on the front lines of Ukraine um, because this is the hinge. This is the inflection point about what comes next in the broader fight uh, of democracy versus autocracy. Well, you know, as we always like to say here that, you know, you have to really, f- of course, fight for democracy. But even here in, in America and the U.K., places where, you know, you feel like your freedom and democracy are, are guaranteed, look at Taiwan you know that it isn't. And so like, that's a perfect example of why we continue to have these fights or and, and uh, support them because you don't want to lose it. You know, it reminds me, and at least I think you'll, I think you'll appreciate this, of, of a quote from uh, a gentleman who's standing right beside me, Mr. Winston Churchill. Winston, my favorite. Um, and look, I, I'll confess, I didn't do my due diligence. This might be apocryphal. There are plenty of apocryphal quotes attributed to Winston because he had so many that were so authentically good. wonderful. Such... Such a such a wit unto himself. Oh, Can't so spell Winston really. without wit. That's right. Now, uh, and, and I have the quote right in front of me. Right, what you got? It, and it reminds me of what he, what he said about 1930s Europe and obviously the, the kind of uh, degrading and eventually imploding security architecture uh, in Europe uh, as the, uh, the Nazis expanded. He said this about those who would seek to mm. appease the kind of genocidal maniacs, these revanchists, these imperialists in Europe. He said, an appeaser is one who feeds a crocodile, hoping it will eat him last. And I gotta tell you, I can't help but think of that quote when I see certain politicians, certain voices saying, let's just do a deal with Putin. We'll give him part of Ukraine. We'll give him this bit and that bit. Everything will be good. Mm -hmm. You know what? We've been doing that for years. Think of Crimea. Think of parts of Eastern Ukraine we have written off. There is no deal to be found with Putin that will succeed if we give him any part of Ukraine, yep. any part of this democratic nation. Well, it's just uh, you give him that, you give him an inch, and, and that's until the next time he wants something else, and you have to, to go for the next bite. And, and, and I tell you, maybe this is a good way to wrap things today. When I was in Nairobi, I had a free day. Yeah. had a day to myself. Nairobi's great. It's got a national park, a 20-minute drive outside. I want to go. You know, it's got the giraffes. It's got the it's got the zebras. It's got oh boy, all my favorite bird species out there as well, <laughs> including the secretary bird. I know it's incredible. <laughs> Don't even know what that is. But uh, I'll tell you, I'll tell you okay. off mic. Okay. Um, it kills snakes by stamping on their heads. Oh. Um, but I saw a crocodile chomping <laughs> on a catfish, and I'm not going to say I thought of Winston Churchill and I thought of Ukraine when I went, when I saw this because I was too you know caught up. By by the scene by the scene ahead of me, but boy oh boy, I, I'll tell you this: I do not want to be on the wrong end of a crocodile, which is why we should not be on the wrong end of this fight of democracy versus autocracy. Well, speaking of crocodile quotes, makes me think of my favorite book, The Kind of Money Cristo, in which uh, there's a line, and I'm not going to you know break down the entire storyline for you, although I could happily do that, uh, in which. Um, the, the reference is made that you should be more worried about the crocodiles and tigers that walk on two feet. Not a bad one right there. Yeah. 
All right. Well, thank you all for joining us this week. Join us next week for some more titillating conversation. And maybe even some more wildlife talk. Who I knows? would love to talk about wildlife some more. That's, that's going to be a separate separate podcast. Yes. And we'll talk about my visit to Australia. It's going to be great. We'll talk Absolutely. about Crocodile Hunter. Anyway, all right. Be safe out there. Bye, guys. The Human Rights Foundation is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization that promotes and protects human rights globally with a focus on closed societies. We promote freedom where it's most at risk in countries ruled by authoritarian regimes.